0: 70s when you could get away with that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. as, as, as to now, where you would, you know, you'd get locked up. So, uh,
1: <laughs> this is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world, now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might listen. Listen to discover the expressions of hope in daily life. Guests on this show are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide the guests the freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation and reflect upon the things I heard them say show, I ask you to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People listen tend to, to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show, My Life on an Ambulance. Thursday, February 14th, Nicholas Cruz walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, took out an assault rifle, and started shooting in the classrooms. When it was over, 17 people were dead, and 14 were wounded. Cameras captured the mayhem of students leaving the school, of parents hugging their children, and of teenagers crying. As media outlets reported the incident, they started to examine the role of teachers, of administrators, and of police who responded to the scene. It struck me how little attention gets paid to the people who, for me, have the most difficult job – the first responders. Emergency medical services are the first to address the aftermath of every human tragedy. They don't prevent, they don't arrest, they respond. They will need to look beyond the tragedy itself and make assessments. Who has the greatest need and how can they best address this situation? Speed is of the essence, but it cannot compromise the best response. We need them, and depend on them. In our time of greatest physical need, they can be the difference between life and death. So how many times have you ever thought about an EMS worker? Have you ever considered the toll this job takes on them? I did, and started wondering what that world was like. So I reached out to a friend in the field. It was an amazing conversation, one that I hope you enjoy and learn from. So let's begin today's show, My Life on an Ambulance. I'm talking to Mike, born and raised a Jersey boy. I'm guessing exit 18W. He's married to Jenna, who lives in Rochester, New York. Mike is living in New Jersey and commuting into Manhattan for work, but he's also commuting to Rochester to be with Jenna and her children. He's a paramedic, a professor, a medical lab researcher, and a nursing student. I could spend 15 minutes listing his jobs, because he's often doing four at a time. I got exhausted just listening to his weekly routine. It's been 25 years since I lived in New York, and at least that long since I had spoken to Mike. Our conversation reminded me of the things I missed about the East Coast. There are no filters. The conversation is raw and the humor is twisted. They say what is on their minds. Thankfully, Mike was on his best behavior, so I didn't have to edit language. To me, Mike reflects what we grew to learn about people from Jersey. They're tough on the outside, but very tender and compassionate just under the surface. As you listen, I think you'll hear this. Mike does what I asked him to do. He gave me the authenticity of his own thoughts. I found it a fascinating conversation, and I hope you do too. So let's meet Mike, the boy raised at a fire. My name
0: is Mike. I'm I started out and grew up in and around the fire department. My dad was in the fire department. My uncles were in the fire department. Their friends were in the fire department. Um, There were friends that were on the first aid squad. I I grew up around this. I grew up climbing on the fire trucks, you know. Um, And this is back in the 70s where my dad would go to a fire with me in the car and he'd say, Stay. And... (laughs) go out and, and leave me leave me in the car much to my uh, my mom's dismay um, so, Yeah. so evidently he'd get in a bunch of trouble you know. he'd go fight a fire and he'd come back smelling like smoke you know and my mom would kind of have a heart attack going well where was Mike and he'd be like well he's in the car you know <laughs> right but, but that was the 70s when you could get away with that kind of stuff you know to now, where you would, you know, you'd get locked up. So I, I grew up around it. I had absolutely no interest in doing it, none. But then I dated uh, a friend of a mutual friend of ours, um, who was an EMT firefighter out on Long Island. She got me into it. So she got me going because the town that I was living in, there was a first aid squad right down the street, and I had, you know, like applied and had joined and had started. And then her and I broke up, so um, so I guess she sort of served her purpose, as it were.
1: <laughs> she she was just a vessel. <laughs> when Mike first served on an EMS squad, it was a part-time gig. He wanted to become a paramedic, but didn't get accepted right away. It was not a question of intelligence. There were only so many openings. So he's talked about his education and training leading up to his current position. Along the way, I learned about his father.
0: Like I went to audio school and I did like I made albums and I cooked and I did all I sold life insurance. I did all sorts of really, you know, silly things. Right. Um, But then I decided to go back to school because, you know, it's. Yeah, I want to be a doctor and, right. you know, you got to go do biology. And so, you know, so I got into the University of Maryland and I, you know, took off and and I was there for a year because three months after I went down or two and a half months after I went down, my dad passed away and then I put the kibosh about being down there. So I moved back into New Jersey and then finished out my degrees up here.
1: Was your dad's debts unexpected out of the blue? Oh, that- yeah.
0: Yeah, he had a heart condition that he pretty much lied to all of us about. <laughs> yeah, he told us, he goes, oh, yeah, well, you know, I got this leaky heart valve, but the doctor says it's nothing, and, um, you know, like, I don't have any symptoms, and he's really amazed, and the reality was he had a really serious problem, was evidently deathly afraid of going to the hospital and getting it taken care of, and he ignored it. And so you learn all these things, you know, years after, you know, they passed, but he was out in California, And he had an aneurysm at the base of the aorta where it joins to the heart. So he, you know, because of the shifting pressures in the plane, he stepped off the plane in Oakland and he collapsed. And, you know, you have to do an autopsy and you have to do the embalming and everything before you send the body anywhere. Um, So he had basically, you know, almost a leader of blood in the sac that surrounds the heart so he just he bled out in seconds oh you know? my goodness yeah yeah so you know i mean i'd kind of like to think that he you know was sort of conscious for only a couple seconds you know reality is he probably was conscious for about 30 seconds or so before he you know sort of passed out from the lack of you know blood going to the brain yeah, so it was completely unexpected. And, you know, when I was going to school in Maryland and we were friends, of chief of police, and the police came to my mom's door and told her, and then they put out an APB on me for the entire length of the New Jersey Turnpike to try to catch me, to get me to go back home. It was it was a mess.
1: How was yeah. that to cope with? Uh,
0: it's, you know, it's 25 years ago now. Right. So I... I remember it's weird. I was two years into doing EMS. I had, you know, a bunch of sort of like cardiac arrests and had seen people die. And my perspective on life and death was starting to change at that point. So while on the one side, I was really sort of upset that my dad is gone. But On the other side of it, I knew how permanent it was simply because I had these other experiences. So it was this it was this mix. And it was just and it was really, honestly, a whirlwind because he was on, you know, the fire department and the DARE program and the PBA and the board of it. My dad did all of these things. And so when they did the, you know, the wake and stuff, there were hundreds of people and there was a it was just a, a blur. The whole thing was a blur. So but I, I remember feeling, you know, like really upset and sad on one end and then sort of indifferent on the other, only because I knew, you know, like I had to go down and look at his clothes that he came back with from California. And I'm looking to see, did he throw up? Did he do this? Did he do that? Where did they start the IVs? You know, so I, you're looking for all of these clothes.
1: In my position as a pastor, I'm often dealing with families coping with the grief of losing someone. These conversations are quite different than how Mike speaks about his father's death. Where most people frame the world emotionally, medical people tend to view things biologically. We hear this in how Mike describes coping with his father's death. One thing I want you to keep in your head as you listen. After 9-11, psychologists descended upon firehouses in New York City. They wanted to help firemen cope with their grief. They actually forced them to talk about their feelings and it backfired. Instead of helping, it did more harm. Most firemen, and I imagine EMS workers, do not cope with grief this way. When someone doesn't express grief the way you think they should, it doesn't mean they're cold and do not grieve, it's just different. I missed an opportunity here. I should have asked Mike to talk more about his changing perspective on life and death. Realizing I was not clear about the different emergency service roles, I asked Mike to explain the difference.
0: Well, EMS is just the service in general. EMTs are emergency medical technicians. They go through, you know, um, and I don't, it's different for different states. New Jersey just upped their their hours, but when I did it, it was 120 hours of training. They just sort of said, here are all the things you could sort of do, and you're sort of like a glorified kind of first aider. You can give oxygen, which is, you know, a medical gas at that time. Now you can give some other, you know, medicines and help you know like there's a lot of stuff in the news with heroin overdoses and narcan and stuff so they can give that they carry that medication and so there are certain protocols that say yes i i can give this you know medication but that's only happened within the past couple years but really it was like you know band-aids and you cpr and splinting and, and so it was all the basic and then there are categories of emts where they start to move it's not it doesn't count in new jersey But in other states, they move into like EMTIs, which are intermediates. So they have some of the skills that paramedics have. They can do advanced airway skills, you know, and their assessment skills are a little more in-depth, but they don't do everything that a paramedic does. Okay. Uh, And then a paramedic is, you know, you have the advanced airway skills, you have a bunch of different IV access, so either through your veins or in your bones or in your neck, you know, different ways to access it. There's a formulary of you know, a multitude of medications that you need to know and how to use and when to use them. And there are right. right. standing orders that you have to sort of follow where, where I can give medicine without a doctor's sort of order. But then there are other things that I have to call the doc for. This is the kind of patient I have, and I can either have them say, okay, go do all of this, or I can suggest and say, if it's okay with you, I'd like to do X, Y, and Z, and give the medications and dosages and and those kinds of things.
1: I should note, we recorded this conversation after both of us had worked a very, very long day. You can hear the effects of being tired, especially here where I display my total command of the English language. But this is the reason for the conversation. I think about it all the time when uh, a focus on large national tragedy, first responders, people in riding an ambulance that this is not always necessarily an exception for them. Yeah, some things are bigger, but you're kind of dealing with that all the time, right?
0: Yes and and no. It's not like every time you get an assignment, it is this huge life-and-death kind of thing where it's like, ah, and you're on edge, and it's like it's it's biting. It's a very small percentage that you actually – Get that kind of a thing. Okay. What you wind up getting, because the healthcare system is sort of so screwed up and how things are sort of prioritized, you get the person who says, you know, like today, I had a gentleman who went to the doctor's office and the doctor said, "Look, I'm going to admit you into the hospital because we want to run these tests." So instead of going to the hospital and getting admitted that way, he decided to drive home and then call for the ambulance. And when he called nine one one. This is what happens. And when you call 911 and they say, well, what's the problem? And he says, well, I can't breathe. Then that automatically bumps it up to a paramedic response. Went to a nursing home for the chest pain early this morning. And I walk into the room and the guy is sitting on the bed with his hands behind his back and his legs crossed over. And I openly said that. And I said, oh, the chest pain with the legs crossed. And then all of a sudden, the, the basic license support crew that was there was like, they just sort of realized what was, they're like, uh, okay, yeah, we don't need you. Why was the call so, made? Because in a nursing home, they don't want to, ke- they send you out to the hospital to make sure, they like, they don't keep you. If you say, oh, my chest hurts, they don't have the ability to sort of diagnose or not diagnose or make that determination. It's automatic, you get sent to the hospital. But when they call for an ambulance, it's, well, he's having chest pain. And so you don't know, is he having chest pain because he sat there and he tried to pick up his commode or, you know, he grabbed the bed and he he pulled his muscles wrong or is he genuinely having a chest pain? They teach you in paramedic school, one of the things that they teach you is to look at somebody and it's sick, not sick. So when I look at you across the room, first impression kind of a thing, I can look at you and go, yeah, you're pretty sick. And then I can look at you and go this is complete nonsense, you know? And so when you walk in, if you're really having some sort of cardiac kind of chest pain event, do you honestly think, are you laying in bed, like behind your head and your legs crossed and stuff? No, you're not.
1: So, okay, not all calls are life and death. But Mike's comments made me think about my in-laws. They live in a senior living center. The ambulance is visiting this center all the time. Each time they see one, they think someone is dying or is in serious trouble. Nine out of ten times, it's just chest pains or someone just needing to be checked out. Thousands of calls like this changes your perspective.
0: Some people might listen to this and go, well, you can't really determine that. It's, you know... Uh, Ah, it's, you know, I've seen enough chest pains, not that I'm a complete expert on it, or I've seen everything or done everything, not by any stretch of the imagination. I think anybody who says, oh, I've seen it all is is full of crap, but, you know, because you never see it all, but you get to be a pretty good read of, you know, what it is. And I've gotten very, in these cases, I've gotten very sort of honest and very sort of literal. Right. Where I will ask you, my partner today was like, I can't believe how like honest you are. Like some of the things you ask, he goes, I wouldn't ask those things. And I'm like, well, because it gets really dumb. And it's, you know, like I had in the last 36 hours, I've had five conversations with people who've been having asthma problems going. Well, look, if you use your asthma inhaler twice and it doesn't do anything, it's not going to get any better at that point. You need to call for an ambulance. Now I'm sitting there and I'm jamming meds into them to try to reverse things that could have been easily tackled 8, 10 hours ago. Right. But they think it's going to get better, and they don't want to go to the hospital, and I'll just keep doing my inhaler. And now at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm pretty close to putting a tube down your throat because you didn't want to go to the hospital 8 hours earlier when you knew your inhaler wasn't working.
1: In January, my mother-in-law suffered a stroke. When she realized something serious was happening, she called a taxi to take her to the hospital. I'm not sure if she didn't call an ambulance because she didn't want to be a bother or if it was out of fear and embarrassment since they see so many people in their living unit leaving this way. Public service announcement. No matter how old you are, if a thought crosses your mind whether you should call an ambulance or not, call the ambulance. Every single time, call the ambulance. If this hits close to home, don't feel bad. You're not alone. Go oh, hey go back to that guy. He yeah. I mean, they're, they're, the guy goes to his doctor, and, and the doctor's gonna admit him, but he doesn't do it. He goes home. He calls the ambulance. Is he doing that because of it's it's there's some benefit to him to do that that way with the health system, or is it just because he he just doesn't?
0: No, no, I, th- I think some people just don't don't know. There are just a, a lot of people who are very sort of uneducated right. and are very and and it's not through any fault of their own. Nobody explains stuff to them. Nobody tells them anything. So they say, go home. Right. And now this poor guy is has so many problems. Like, he needs to go and get treated, right? right. But now he goes up the stairs and, and he can't breathe. Because he's got all of this sort of fluid that's got to get treated. It's not anything that I'm going to go fix. But now he can't breathe. And now he, you know, the doctor says I can't breathe and I have fluid. And now all of a sudden we're showing up. And for me to show up and, and take a look at you is like $1,500. I mean, to treat you, depending on the meds I use, the bill can go way over 2000 But I don't need to be there. You know, like on that sense, like I would rather sort of quickly talk to you Kind of a thing wh- right. and not have to charge you or like in some cases, I think that's where the, the whole, you know, healthcare system system is, is broken on some levels because people are just very sort of uneducated. I think he just didn't know because he just didn't know. And his wife was like, they're both elderly, and she's like, I don't really drive anymore, and so I think he just wanted to go home, get the car home kind of a thing. We'll call the ambulance and go that way. Right. And that's fine. I'll take care of people like that all day long. I'm not certainly faulting him or whatever.
1: People just don't know. All ages, all demographics, all conditions – Sometimes I wonder if the world just throws too much information in our laps. It becomes too overwhelming to digest it all. In the last two congregations I served, we had a parish nurse. This is just an invaluable position for every congregation. Nurses can help educate. More importantly, they help translate medical information to families pressed to make serious decisions at critical times. It relieves so much stress from the situation and then there are the other people.
0: But there are other people who will call and say, I want to go to this hospital on the other side of the city. And then as soon as you drop them off in, in triage, they get up and they walk out the door. Because it's better to skip out of the Medicaid $5 copay than it is to pay for a cab and pay 20 bucks to go across town. It's cheap. And, hold on, hold
1: on, hold on, hold on welcome. Say it again I mean, so like, you'll take him across town to a certain hospital Yeah And then they'll jump out of there because?
0: Because they need to go somewhere in that area and it's cheaper to call for the ambulance to have them come pick up People know how to play the system You know, I had a, we had a regular homeless guy He He drove me nuts because he was just hungry Like, the dude was just hungry and he, and he would always complain about arm pain, but he would call and say that he had chest pain because you knew you got a faster response that way. Right. And he pulled a couple times, he pulled me off some pretty serious jobs that I got yanked off of because I was closer to where his location was than to where I was going. And I got yanked off that job to go pick him up. And, he, you know, and I'm like, and, and, you know, when you hear the address for certain homeless people and stuff, you know, you're going to pick up Bob Jones. You know, right. you know, right. And so you pick him up and this guy, you know, his name started with a J and I was like, dude, I'm like, let me guess. You're hungry and your arm hurts. Right. And he's like, I know you guys don't like me. And it's like, it's not a question. Anybody will come pick you up. We don't care about that. We will take you to the hospital and get you a tuna fish sandwich. Like nobody really cares about that. But when you call and say that your chest hurts and you pull me off an assignment where somebody is really, really sick. Yes, I get pissed off. I don't like you when right. you do that because right. you care tear away from somebody who really needs it just because you're hungry. No way, will come get you. Right. We'll always come get you. You know, but so people play the system.
1: People always play the system. I imagine listeners will respond to that statement in a variety of ways. Do we fix a system so people cannot play it? Or do we strive for a system where the people are fed? Thoughts from an earlier interview came floating through my head here. Carl, who worked with homeless youth and families, would probably give this kind of perspective. If the thought of man calling an ambulance to get a sandwich gets you mad, just think what kind of life you live, where you have to call an ambulance to eat. Mike's sharing this reminds me, if you don't address poverty, poverty will address you. The poor will always influence the whole system. So we might as well be proactive in life giving in our approach. Jersey City's pretty economically rough, isn't it?
0: Yeah. It's it's sort of shifting. Some areas are more affluent, they're they're changing that. So areas that were exceedingly bad. 15 years ago are not pretty, you know, the brownstones in one section, you could buy a brownstone, you know, for like 75 grand and now they go well over a million, one five. It's not just Jersey City. The the company that I work for now has different assignments. So one of the areas that we go work in is in Livingston and that's a very affluent area. People got like elevators in their houses and stuff, like very sort of rich, you know, kind of you know, people. But then I also work in like Irvington, which is right next to Newark. And so you're going into Newark and Irvington and they're very, you know, indigent and, you know, there are, you know, a lot of uneducated folks that are there. They are living in basements with no running water, no electricity, you know, it's just a high amount of drug use, alcohol abuse. It's a lot of that stuff, you know. So you go from one extreme to the next.
1: Mike shared with me that a colleague tracked his calls over a two-month period. 73% of all calls were canceled on the way to the location. Of the 27% where the ambulance actually made it to the scene, only 7% of those calls required medical attention. But that also means 93% of all successful calls involve problem-solving at the scene. Someone is called and doesn't know something. So I was really interested in knowing how much does economics play a role in responding to what I call bogus calls. His answer was surprising. But if you're in an area that's affluent, well, well there, there'll be a significant less um, bogus calls, would you say?:
0: No, I think no. I think on some levels, it's the same. Somebody could be exceedingly well-educated, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're educated medically. But, you know, a lot of times, too, I mean, you walk in and people are really sort of, you know, like, nervous. I I don't know about this and I don't know about that. And they're, you know, and they're looking for somebody to tell them that, you know, they're okay. Right. You know, and we'll never tell them not. Like, I'll never tell you not to go to the hospital. I mean, I won't do that. Right. You know. But I'll say, you know, look, you need to, you know, you need to go to the hospital and get checked out. Because the one thing which I have seen over and over is that people don't want to go to the hospital. And then I come back an hour later or three hours later and they are infinitely in worse shape, you know. And now all of a sudden you walk in the door and you go, oh, we're back for this guy. And then you walk in the door and you're like, ah, crap, this is not going to be good. Oh, now you're really you're really working. So to, you know to sort because of, now you're you're so many hours behind the ball. You know we could have taken care of this three hours ago, but now because you didn't want to go, and I can't make you go to the hospital. You're alert and oriented, answering my questions appropriately. If I grabbed you and said you're going to the hospital anyway, that's a battery. It's
1: already- <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so,
0: and, and it's really tough too because some family is like you got to make them go, and it's like unfortunately I can't. Like the law binds your hands.
1: Let's take a quick commercial break. I want to thank you for listening. It may not seem like a big deal to listen, but it is. We're living in a time with a short supply of ears. Our tendency is to listen to people who agree with us and to get frustrated with people who don't. How can we understand each other if we're not willing to listen? And how can we listen if we don't give people an authentic platform to talk? Ordinary Voices is about listening to the thoughts and lives of ordinary people and hopes that it will build a better understanding of each other. Then framing these conversations in the context of Scripture and faith so we might begin to see the presence of God working through these ordinary lives. People who listen do more than understand. They become more compassionate. They start to see themselves and people who think differently. It all begins with listening. So I want to thank you for taking the time to do just that. Ordinary Voices is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. You can go to the website, OrdinaryVoices.org, to find all podcast interviews, prayers, and the blog. You can also support it by recommending it to a friend. Now, let's resume our conversation with Mike. Now we're going to delve into the 7%, the calls requiring medical attention. The world most of us hear about on the news is Mike's reality on the ambulance. He's on the front line of drug addiction response. Frustration gets expressed through dark humor and sarcasm. While it may not be your humor, it's definitively a coping mechanism. You will hear me laugh because I've worked in similar tough and hopeless conditions. I'm not making light of the situation. I just understand this kind of humor.
0: You try to educate people as much as possible you know but sometimes educating people you know especially if they're like doing heroin and stuff and they get pissed at you because you wake them up it's like all right well look if you want to go do heroin then do a, do heroin in some place where people don't see you and don't call then that way I don't show up and wreck your high you know right. and that's because of the public service announcement you know <laughs> <laughs> Like, don't do all of your methadone at the same time. Like, kind of space it out and enjoy it for a bit. (laughs) Don't don't do it in Dunkin' Donuts when you're eating and now you're choking because you're too, you know, like, lethargic to, like, actually swallow. And then get mad at me because I wake you up because you're about to die. Sorry, you know, but don't, don't do that in private. Right. You know, don't do heroin in your mom's apartment so that your mom doesn't freak out, you know. Don't do it in front of your kids where your kids are calling 911 and they sit there and they go, I'm sorry, sir. Don't serve me. Don't apologize to me. Apologize to your kid. The kids right there. Don't look at me. Look at them and say, I'm sorry. I'm such a screw up. Like, say, I'm sorry that I did heroin and I almost died. Like, tell your kid that. Don't tell me because I have no problem coming back here an hour from now and pronouncing it. It doesn't affect me one way or the other. You know, like I don't want to see them die, but like you try to do that kind of tough talk at the same time. It's frustrating. I, it gets real frustrating. You get real jaded at times. You well sit
1: there just listening to I talk now. Oh, I she- mean, that's kind of the thing that I'm um, I'm talking about. She- you kinda get jaded to the world, right? She- yeah.
0: I mean, I hate to say it, but you wind up developing like on some level this disdain for humanity. Because you see the absolute best of people. I have seen some amazing, caring, beautiful things. And I have seen completely horrible things. And it's it's that swing from one side to the other that you sort of, I don't like you like you have to become indifferent, I think, on some level, because right. you've got to do and you've got to get through the job. You know, some things are just so screwed up when you walk in the door that you're like, you just, the back of your head's going, ah, you know, but then you're like, I got to go do this. I got to walk in, you know, when the cop comes running out and hands you a baby because mom slept with the baby and slept on top of the baby and asphyxiated the kid, you know, and now, you know, the baby's dead. But now you've got to go and do this more for show for the people on the street because a crowd is gathering. Then, you know, like that's what you do, you you know, but it's but it's horrible. And, you know, because you're just you know, it's a futile effort and it's something so preventable. But now they put the baby in the thing and I slept on top of the baby and now the baby's dead. You know, you see these completely horrible things and you see, you know, what people are capable of doing to themselves or doing to other people. Like it gets hard. I can get through most of it, but there are some days where it's really tough.
1: A couple of things Mike said here really struck with me. The conflict of seeing the best of people and the worst of people. The reality of our cruelty, not just to others, but to ourselves. Mike may express a disdain for humanity, but his speech pattern reveals a deep desire to stop people from harming themselves. That you can't becomes a major frustration. Listen for what Mike is trying to say. The emotional toll of dealing with death. You can be trained to be psychologically wired to be more resilient than others. But death is still death, and it takes a toll on everyone. Warning for listeners, this part gets dark, and the images Mike describes are graphic. Mike's not just processing 24 hours. He is processing 28 years of responding to trauma. But you may not want to listen, or at least be careful who is listening to this next clip. What like was one of those hard days like?
0: I guess it was about a year ago. I played Angel of Death for two days. I had twelve deaths. I had seven one day and then I had five the next. And you're like, come on and it wasn't like simple things. It was like people who had arrested, there were pronouncements, but then I had like suicides where I had a kid who had a fight with his mom and turned and like leapt out of a twenty first story balcony. Like, crazy, and by the end of the day, you're just like, God, enough. I am done with dead people. Like, I'm done. Like, I am done. It just, because it just, it beats you down. And then I went into the next shift the next day in a different place, and then first job was, like, a like a pronouncement, and then I had a cardiac arrest. It was like, so there were 12 people, you know, in under 24 hours that had died, passed away, actively died, killed themselves, murdered, you know, like, holy crap, enough, I'm, I'm done, I'm mentally
1: done, I need, I need a break. You respond to a kid that's jumped out of that balcony, that's got to be kind of an ugly scene to get to just the physical part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I felt bad for that kid because it just it didn't get it. I forget what the argument was about, but he just turned around and he just did a swan right off the balcony and landed on a roof that was right. Somebody's apartment that had like a little patio kind of a thing. And they had kids like, thank God they weren't home, but we had to go through their apartment to go see the kid. And, you know, and on one end, you're sort of fascinated by the effects of your like, What apartment did he jump from, you know, to what is actually sort of in front of you, you know, and on the other end, it's, you know, it really sucks because it's completely useless you know it's pointless but you know i mean for some suicides and stuff i i actually have a huge amount of sort of weird respect for these people in the sense that your self your that fight to self preserve and to be there they managed to overcome it for whatever reason, and carry out this senseless act, and as sad as that act is, if they could have, you know, if they could carry that out, could you imagine what they could have done if they had turned their attention in some sort of positive way, you know? Like, if you can touch out that type of an act and do this, you know, like, you know what you could have done when things were different, if you had felt differently? There's no stopping somebody who could, if you've got that kind of a drive, it's just it's sad that it's you know that it comes to that end.
1: Does it start to does it start to wear on you? Like, in, is this the kind of job that you can only do for so long?
0: I think maybe for some people, yeah. I think I think everybody's sort of different as to what you can tolerate, what you what you can't. Right. Kind of. I love doing this, so. This is, you know, I just came to sort of a... Look, if it's your turn to go, it's your turn to go. Like, I am such a firm believer in that. And and I know a bunch of other people who are sort of the same way. If it's your turn to go, if God says, Hey, you know what, Eric? Tomorrow morning at 9, guess what? You're going. And it doesn't matter who's there, what's around, what's available, what nothing if it's your turn to go it's your turn to go the only reason why you survived it is is because it wasn't your turn to go and god had some other plan for you i have worked and i have watched other people work when it is your turn to go it is your turn to go it does not matter at all what's available what drugs what equipment technical ability if it's your turn to go it's your turn to go that's it you're done but if it's not it's not your time to go You have other things to do, regardless of what those things are. It may be nothing. It may be that you go on and invent the cure for cancer. It may be that, you know, you run over some lady in the street, you know, and then you die in jail, you know, whatever. But there's some sort of plan for you on that end. So if you don't go, it's because you're not done yet. There are other things you need to do while you're here. And I am massively a believer in that one.
1: This segment really struck me hard and it got deep in my head and soul and lingered there all through Holy Week. It was unnerving to think of the randomness of my own demise. It made me feel really vulnerable. Driving back and forth to work, I kept on thinking, will this be the day? All people feel like they're in control of their own life and death. Eat the right foods, get exercise, don't smoke, look both ways before crossing the street. Don't talk to strangers. Think of the rules we learned from infancy, which we think will help put the controls in our hands. There's not much hope if there's a timepiece embedded in my soul counting down to a random end. Frankly, it's depressing. But hold on to that feeling. I want to come back to it later. But I keep searching for what it takes to be a paramedic. enjoy just how physically the body and the whole thing works
0: yeah and i like working i like i like assignments that you you've got to work like you've really got to work i'll take care of anybody i'll take care of you know i i've had you know like people who sort of you know like fallen in their couch and couldn't get up and now they're so atrophied that you know they just can't get up i've gone and put them in the shower, like we've got them washed up and packed a bag for them and called delayed extrication on scene, it's going to take us a while, and like clean them up and pack the bag and take them to the hospital because you know, that's the right thing to do for them, you know, it's not like they're this piece of meat that you just got to throw in and go on to the next assignment, I mean, they're they're a person and you've got to go do that, you know but and I will do that day in and, and day out, and I take assignments that are challenging that you walk in the door and you're like, all right, let's go to work you know, whatever it happens to be, it's like, okay, this is it. And you've got to think and you've got to move quick and you've got to act fast, you know, because now your time is of the essence. So you've got to do a lot, do it really fast, you know. So it, it's fun and it's challenging and I like taking care of people. I mean, I love doing this job.
1: There's something about you have to be cold to your circumstances. There's, you wouldn't yeah, because, keep on doing it if you weren't passionate about it.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm definitely compassionate about it. And I definitely like taking care of people and stuff. But I think there's that mix of frustration. And I don't want to say cold, but you've got a job to do, regardless of of what it is, you've got a job to do. So if it's completely horrible, and it's completely screwed up, you just you put those blinders on your feelings have to come later. And then The thing is, is that we all make really horrible jokes. And I mean, horrible jokes. But you just saw some completely horrific things. You just saw a family completely in distress. You know, kids and adults and parents and, you know, and you got a job to do. You got to cope with all of that stuff. And you got to get through it. And then, you know, and when the assignment's done, you're on to the next assignment. Somebody else needs to get taken care of and you're on to the next thing. And you may not get to think about that for like three hours because now you're just going and going and, you know, you're charting and caring and, you know, meds and all of this stuff. And so, you know, you may not get to those thoughts until, you know, much later where you finally get to take a break and you go, ooh, okay. well, that was pretty nuts.
1: Maybe Mike deals with more trauma than the rest of us, but the majority of his day is dealing with the simple frustrations of human behavior. That can be very stressful. As I keep searching for how Mike deals with stress, maybe may be a good time for you to think about yourself. When work and life produce stress, how do you handle it? What are your coping mechanisms? Where's the outlet when you you bottle all that stuff up and you got to go on you got to move on and you bottle all that stuff up where does it is there no outlet?
0: Some people like get together you know and they go out and like hang out at a bar and stuff. I was never one to sort of do that. Right. But those hanging out in, in a bar days ended a long long time ago. Right. So I don't I don't do that. I don't I don't really have an outlet for it. I just sort of take it and internalize it, you know? I have some people who are like, what was the worst call you ever did? And it's like, I bet it was some accident or something. And that's like nothing. Like, I won't talk about the worst call I ever had. I mean, I just won't talk about it because it was that bad for me personally. And I just won't discuss it, you know? And like, Jenna's tried to pry it out of me, you know, a couple of times and she knows I I won't talk about it. I just, I won't talk about it to other people that I work with. I just won't discuss it, you know? because it was that effed up, you know. And I've never seen anything like it since. I hope I don't.
1: Right. You
0: know, if I do, I mean, you know, then then that's what it is. I mean, because that's just sort of part of the job. You know, I guess other people have different outlets for stuff. I don't know if I do, you know. I don't think I do not like i drink heavy or go sob uncontrollably you know on a telephone pole or something like that right. it's you know you just move on and you know and and i don't know you know in, in like talking to you and like telling you these things if it makes it seem like i'm really sort of cynical or like i just have this bad outlook on life or, you know like i've had people sort of tell me like ah you're just really sort of angry or combative or whatever and i you know And I I certainly don't feel that way. You know, at the end of the day, when you go home and you're only sort of left lost with your own thoughts about it, you know, that's when you really have to sort of deal with it. It's easy to sort of goof around, you know, somebody, too. But at the same time, too, you know, you get tired of talking about medical stuff all the time, all the time. And it's, you know, and it's hard when you're like in and you're doing Something medical like and then your whole job is medical and then you're on the truck and it's medical and then you get questions from people and it's medical and you're like enough. I just want to talk about sports. I want to talk about a car. I want to talk, you know, like I I just want to talk about something different because enough of medical like I'm tired of answering questions because I've got to answer questions and solve problems and stuff all day long. And now I need to mentally sort of take my hook off. Jenna does that to me a lot. And and I know she's curious and has questions and, you know, and things about the kids that she deals with and stuff. And, you know, but sometimes it really becomes enough. And I'm like, just honey, like, can you not ask me, you know, those like I'm done medical. Like I just worked 78 hours like, you know, in the last five days. I'm medically sort of. Like, I don't want to talk about medical. Don't ask me about seizures or, you know, these things. Unless it comes up in some weird context where you go, oh, well, that's kind of cool. And then you have some conversation about it. But just a, you know, just a barrage of, like, constant questions and stuff. It's like, I I need to take a break. Like, I just need to take a break. Like, I just want to watch cartoons. And she watches all of these things. Like, she watched an autopsy the other night. And she's like, oh, it was really gross, but it was really cool and stuff. And I'm, like, watching, like, robot Chicken. You know, that's how I'm taking my head off the, you know, like that's how I'm taking my head off the hook. And I'm watching Family Guy and I'm watching Frasier. And like, I like to watch mindless crap because I don't have to think about it. It doesn't take a lot of thought. I don't have to worry about somebody's living or dying. You know, like you don't have to worry about
1: that stuff. Jump back for a moment to the studies taken in the wake of 9-11. At the time, the standard approach to trauma was to urge people to talk through the experience and the emotions of the event. Researchers discovered this approach actually plunged people into a deeper level of anxiety and depression. According to a July 28, 2011 article in the New York Times, research conducted by people studying the impact of the 9-11 attack in the World Trade Centers discovered that 35% of the general population who witnessed the attack experienced post-traumatic stress. For first responders, it was barely 10%. In the end, they discovered people are far more resilient than experts thought. Now, they only have people talk about trauma if the person, not the therapist, thinks it will help. ever think of what you're doing in terms of like a, a faith or a spiritual dimension to that
0: well in terms of what I mean ha, wh- like what do you like does it feed you spiritually by doing this work yeah that's a hard one that's a that's a hard one to answer sometimes yes a lot of times no you know because you just eat crazy shit and you just go how can people do that to one another, you know, right. have the mom who smokes and the baby walks in and, you know, and gets burned in the eye by the cigarette. And then the mom's blaming the kid. Oh, the kids, you know, he just runs around. He ran into the cigarette and kids just don't run into cigarettes. Right. Like It's just not on their agenda for the day. Right. You know, but, you know, so it's, it's hard to have faith, you know, um, when that goes on, but then you get these brief glimpses of of things that pop up, and you go, "Wow, that was pretty cool." Right. that was it was slick to see that or you watch people interact, and then that's pretty, you know, pretty cool, you know, like right. I hate doing church jobs. like I hate going to churches, like on Sundays and stuff. I hate going to churches because it's you know, i I watch people, you know, like they mean well. But then they hype up whoever is sick in the church so much that it actually makes things worse. You know, I went into one uh, I went into one Baptist church and everybody was sort of singing and praying. I couldn't even hear this woman. I stood up. I made everybody stop and go in the other room. Uh, I was like, you guys got to get out. I can't hear anything, you know. Um, But then I also had a priest, you know. Uh, Some 90 year old lady or she was really old, like in the front, like one of the front pews had passed out and we needed to go get her. And, you know, he was like, "Um, so is this going to take a lot of time? I got to get going. It, you know, it shakes it, you know, it's it's hard to, have. you know, like it becomes hard to have, you know, like faith or, you know, so. And I've never been, you know, so like I like camp because I like camp, you know. I didn't go to camp because it was some godly, spiritual thing. I always struggled with that. I had multiple conversations with Bob.
1: So who is Mike, and what did I learn from our interview? At the end of the day, Mike is a good-hearted person with a deep compassion for humanity. This compassion is not expressed in flowery words, but frustration. One has to care to be that frustrated. Even when someone says they fight a disdain for humanity, that kind of emotion comes from a desire to help. You don't spend 28 years on an ambulance without it. The pay's not that great and the emotional reward too few. He understands that he has a skill set and a frame of mind where his gifts can be used to help other people, and he uses them. But it's also hard not to hear Mike's relationship with his father breathing through his entire life. The biggest impact of this interview, though, was on me. I was editing this show while preparing my sermons for Holy Week. The things Mike said went right to my core and absolutely transformed my Easter experience. On Thursday night, as we gathered around tables to break bread, we talked of the new commandment, love your neighbor as I have loved you. But I was thinking of a paramedic on an ambulance responding to a call. It is so easy to see how our understanding of good might help others. It is much more difficult to open ourselves up to hear our neighbors, to let them tell us the good they need. We need to listen for their pulse and their condition, to understand the love we must share. Ultimately, no matter what the circumstances our neighbors present, we have a job to do. We are to love them. It's a choice in how to deal with the insanity of the world. I was thinking about Mike fighting a disdain for humanity on Good Friday. As we sang these powerful songs about death, I found myself asking, why do we inflict so much pain and horror on each other, and ourselves? Despite our amazing wealth of information, knowledge, and advancement, 2,000 years later, we still torture our enemies. We drop chemical weapons on innocent citizens, and we find new and creative ways to kill each other. The God many blame for this insanity is the same God we yearn to save us from it. That's why so many people have a problem with God. If death is a reality no one can escape, and our greatest fear, why do people worship a God who dies? On Good Friday, because of this interview, I allowed myself to dwell in darkness. But on Easter morning, there was a line in the Gospel of John that caught my attention. When Mary recognizes Jesus... He tells her, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet gone. Easter is more than an empty tomb. It is one step towards a bigger end, an end we never really see in Scripture, but we are told to hope for. Easter is not about a single resurrection, it is about a new creation. Even if we never knew Jesus, the universe is full of stories of death becoming a new creation. The physical world bears witness to it everywhere. So maybe Easter's not something foreign and, and new to believe in. Maybe it's just a witness to reality. The truth of all creation, religious or not, death is not final. There's something more which makes death a gateway and not a conclusion. This feeling washed over me on Easter morning, and it was beautiful and life-giving. our show, I want to thank you for listening and I want to thank Mike for sharing. Mike's looking to get a nursing job in the Rochester, New York area. So if you got any leads, you'd love to hear. My next interview is with accomplished author and transformation guru, Daniel Maurer. We're going to talk about stories and how they help us find transformation. Until then, check out the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. That's OrdinaryVoices.org to follow along. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. And remember, it's a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation.